welcome to Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. Hello, welcome to another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. I'm your host, Tom Masters, and our guest today is Dr. David Clark. He's the president of the Psychophysiologic Disorders Association and an assistant clinical professor of gastroenterology emeritus at Oregon Health and Science University. He teaches graduate courses in psychophysiologic medicine at Arizona State University, and he's the author of the book, They Can't Find Anything Wrong. Welcome. Thank you, Tom. I'm Dave. Welcome to the show. Um, I'm very excited to have Dave on the show. He is a gastroenterologist. And he's one of the pioneers in leading the efforts as far as looking at the link between the mind and the body and in the development of symptoms. So he has given some lectures at a conference I put on in Seattle a few years ago. He practiced gastroenterology until 2009. He's academically oriented at Portland, um, Oregon at the Health Sciences University. Um, he teaches, um, is called Psychophysiological Medicine at Arizona State University and also at the Cummings Graduate Institute. And he wrote a book called They Can't Find Anything Wrong, which was excellent. I've read the book. And did you write another book called Stress Illness Syndrome? Was that um, your? A book uh, that I edited. I was a lead editor for a textbook called Psychophysiologic Disorders, but right. we, uh, we kept the jargon out of it. So actually I'm hearing now that um, science-oriented patients are reading it uh, for self-help purposes. Oh, good. So what I'm fascinated about is that I came through my awareness from my own personal experience. Um, I heard a lecture by Dr. Howard Schumner in, in 2009 that actually started putting things together pretty quickly. And then Dave um, has known Howard for what, a long time, right? How did you meet Howard Schumner? Was that after you knew Dr. Starno's work or before? You know, somehow Howard uh, tracked me down in uh, 2009 when he was putting together a conference of everybody he could find who worked in the psychophysiologic realm. And, and that conference was held in March of 09 in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And there must have been uh, 40 or 50 of us there. Um, over half of us gave uh, short talks of 20 or 30 minutes. And we were all saying the same things. You know, we were finishing each other's sentences. We were uh, telling each other stories about our patients that, that matched up. Uh, with our therapeutic approaches. It, it was a remarkable meeting because so many of us had been working in isolation up to that point. And I'd only heard about Dr. Sarno the year before in, in 2008 when I was on a national tour to promote my first book. And someone in the audience in Chicago raised their hand and said, hey, you sound like Dr. Sarno. So of course I, I went and I got one of his books, happened to be a mind-body prescription. And I could see that the, here was another person um, that uh, had a meeting of the minds uh, that we'd all come from you know, different points in the galaxy as far as our personal experience and our medical training. And yet we had all come together uh, to reach uh, almost identical conclusions about what was wrong with patients with this form of illness. It was, it was truly a remarkable meeting that uh, Howard and his colleague, uh, John Strax, put together. Great. Well, I know you've been practicing gastro. When did you start practicing gastroenterology? Well, I was a, a fellow uh, in um, you know, my training years uh, at UCLA, and that's okay. really where I started uh, with all this. I, I met a patient uh, in 1982 who had been referred from UC San Diego because they could not find out anything that would explain her very you know, severe symptoms that she was having. We did some specialized testing that also was normal. 
And I was doing her exit interview and I, I stumbled on the fact that uh, she had been uh, severely sexually abused as a girl. Uh, nobody had touched her against her will for 25 years. And yet suddenly at the age of 35, she became severely ill with a mysterious illness. And I knew of a psychiatrist uh, named Harriet Kaplan, who was board certified in medicine, who had an interest in mind-body uh, conditions. I had no knowledge uh, of those at all. I didn't think uh, that it would be at all helpful to this patient who was so severely ill um, that to see a psychiatrist, but it was the last thing left to, that we could possibly do to help her. And I was shocked to learn three months later that the psychiatrist had completely cured her uh, with less than uh, three, three months of weekly counseling sessions. So that, that was a, a major earthquake in, in my medical education and started my whole uh, progress in this field. And then how did it evolve? I mean, you clearly have had different renditions of your um, care and treatment. And I'm assuming you started to bring these things into your clinical practice because obviously irritable, irritable bowel syndrome um, is a big, big disorder. One of the bigger problems in the United States right now. Um, how did that start? Trans how did that translate into your clinical practice? How did those concepts? I didn't realize it started that early in your career. It took me about 20 years to get onto this pathway. But what? How did it start to translate into clinical care that early on? Well, I, you know, I, I was aware from Dr. Kaplan's work, and we prevailed on her to sit in with us in outpatient GI clinic. Uh, and we always found a couple of patients that she could provide insight on. And so that gave me a framework for how to think about this. But uh, I never thought I would see more than a few patients a year that had these issues. And, you know, I certainly didn't learn enough to, to do treatment myself, because I thought, you know, I'll just send him off to whatever Dr. Kaplan there is uh, in Portland. Well, I was wrong on both counts. It turned out that I was quickly seeing five or six patients a week with these issues. It ended up being 35% of my practice for 25 years. Uh, I would estimate over 7,000 people. And there were no Harriet Kaplans in Portland. So when I sent them off to mental health, they would get usually cognitive behavioral therapy, which is usually uh, far less than what these patients need. And so many of them would come back and say, I've been to the, uh, the counselor and I'm still ill. What, what do we do now? And so I, I was their last resort, essentially. And I, I interviewed them. I tried to use the principles uh, from Dr. Kaplan and gradually over a period of uh, probably took me three, four years um, with you know, 250, 300 interviews a year, the pieces of the puzzle began to come together. And I, I would say by the end of the 1980s, um, my learning curve had reached a, a decent level and I was getting excellent results. Even when I was more of a beginner, I was getting better results than, um, the traditional healthcare system was getting because they ignored all the psychosocial issues in these patients and, and focused on the biomedical, the organ diseases and the structural abnormalities. And that just wasn't cutting it. So um, I, I got the, the doctor of the year award from my medical group uh, in 1990, largely because of the success I was having uh, with this population of patients. Yeah. I mean, we're not trained in these concepts. We're still not, as you know, and so it's frustrating because the data shows that only 20% of physicians are comfortable managing chronic pain and then less than 1% enjoy it. And I'm guessing like I am, it turns out that you take people with no hope and you give them back their lives. Why is one of the most rewarding things imaginable? 
it, it, it turned out to be an incredibly enjoyable, inspiring experience to take people without hope and actually give them back their lives. You bet. I mean, you know, I've the, the training that I've done for other physicians around the country and in, in Europe and Canada, uh, it's so rewarding to see when they can take these principles, apply them in their own practices, and suddenly they're taking uh, 30 or 40% of their practice and turning it from a source of frustration into a source of reward. Uh, as one family doctor put it, um, it put the joy back into her practice. She was thinking of leaving medicine because, you know, in any, imagine anybody in any profession who was confronted with 30 or 40% of the problems uh, that hit their desk every day and they don't know what to do about it. Yeah, of course, it's going to be you know, painful and frustrating. But once you learn these ideas, uh, you can turn that situation completely around. So can you um, encapsulate by the 19, end of the 1980s and early 1990s what your approach was? Let's say I'm your patient, I've got stomach issues, not feeling good, fatigued, anxious, lots of multiple physical symptoms. Uh, I had the same problem you did. I didn't have resources either. I had to develop my own approach based on necessity. I, none of my, I didn't have psychologists at all that did anything. I didn't have psychologists, period. My pain program at my hospital did not have psychologists. Unbelievable. Any, any of this work. And the one psychologist, psychologist I had was phenomenal. So I could work a psychologist. It was much better, but we still were able to get a lot of success doing it on our own. So I'm just curious from your perspective, what was your basic approach? Oh, I'm in your office. I've had stomach pain for five years, all sorts of headaches, and I'm not feeling good. I'm anxious. How would you approach me? You bet. Well, it's what I call a stress evaluation. Um, my shortest paper on this uh, was published in Family Systems and Health uh, in 2016. And it's basically consists of six parts. Uh, first, you get a complete history of the symptoms, when and where did they start, and what's been their pattern over time, because you can tell a lot from that. And also later on, when you find out about stress in the patient's life, you can often make chronological links between when and where the person was having their symptoms and when and where they were having their stress. So getting that chronology right uh, is very important. And you get some very uh, sometimes dramatically useful information from that. One of my patients, uh, he only got his symptoms while he was driving to work. Uh, he was perfectly fine um, all the rest of the time, but nobody else, none of the other doctors who had interviewed him got that particular piece of history. So that was a you know, very simple example. Um, second part is to- okay, just, can, I stop, can I stop you for yeah, the you bet. So just for the audience education, we call that a trigger. Yes. Right. And so trigger means that something in the environment reminds you something in the past that was unpleasant and bam, you're triggered. And so you're- I'm going to say something I think I've said to my audience multiple times is that your brain and body just respond as a unit. I mean, you can't really respond unless your nervous system interprets the data. So you have some environmental factor that says unsafe, and that's how every living creature survives is by responding to your environment in a way to keep you safe. So something in the present, whatever that was, reminded him of some situation in the past that wasn't safe. And even though you may intellectually know that driving down the road is safe, your unconscious brain doesn't really know that. And bam, you get this trigger. So is that a fair, fair assessment, Dave? In a lot of cases, yes. This particular man, uh, the stress that he was experiencing was that he was in a two-person office uh, in a large corporation. 
and his partner was transferred to the Midwest somewhere. So instantly his workload doubled. So what he I was see. facing was right in front of him uh, right. on his way to work every day. Uh, when he drove home from work, he was fine. Wow. Okay. So the history is the first thing uh, in pattern um, and the amount of stresses are under. What are some of the things that you used to do? Uh, next thing is look for stresses in the person's life at the moment. Um, very often, um, you know, it can be uh, something to do with your personal uh, life. It can be uh, your family, your, your workplace, your neighbor, um, anything stressful that's happening in your life at the moment. Um, another one of my patients, it was domestic violence. Uh, and the, the period of time that that was going on, it corresponded exactly to the time uh, that she was having her symptoms. So anything along those lines. Step three in the stress evaluation is childhood stress. Uh, were you under stress as a child? You know, anything that could have impacted your self-esteem, anything that could have generated negative emotions that you had to suppress at that, at that time, uh, such as you know, fear, anger, um, rage, shame, grief, guilt, those kinds of things uh, that uh, a child has to, has to suppress in order to you know, continue to exist in that uh, challenging environment. And those emotions uh, tend to come bubbling up uh, later on in a person's life. That was the, the issue with the uh, sexual abuse survivor whom I evaluated uh, was referred from, from San Diego. Um, fourth and fifth and sixth parts of the stress evaluation are much simpler. Uh, you're just looking for depression, um, PTSD, or um, anxiety disorders. And those tend to be missed uh, in primary care. It's embarrassing, but uh, you know, to me as a physician, but something like two-thirds of people with depression, the diagnosis is not made correctly. And the reason for that is that people who are suffering from the disease depression don't always have the subjective sense of feeling depressed. So when you ask people, do you feel depressed? In my practice, a majority of them said no. They might be stressed, they might be frustrated, they might feel exasperated, they might be desperate to be uh, free of their physical symptom, whatever it is, but they don't admit to feeling depressed. So you have to dig a little deeper and ask them about their energy level, their appetite. Are they crying for no obvious reason? Have they lost interest in things they used to love to do? Those are all symptoms of depression that um, do crop up in this patient population and that help you to confirm the diagnosis and begin appropriate treatment, but very, very easy to miss uh, in a primary care setting. So then you have a pretty clear picture of what's going on, which yeah. does take a little time, right? Yeah, I tell my uh, primary care audiences, they don't have to gather all this information on one visit. You know, it's, right. these are patients that come back and come back. So, you know, get it a little bit at a time and you're still on the right track. Yeah, I'm not necessarily proud of my approach because I still moved pretty darn fast. That's why I ended up writing the book to try to actually help people learn while I was still going a thousand miles an hour. But I just would ask a simple question, uh, and this is much better than what I did, but I just asked some question, you know, what's going on? How's your life? And it was incredible what would come pouring out just like now, because I think people have lots of structural pathology. And usually, I probably would guess 80% of the patients I saw in my office with chronic pain has some major, major suffering going on. And people suffer a lot. And going into this degree of suffering isn't really helpful in this, in this show, but that simple question was unbelievable. And within 90 seconds to two minutes, I knew, okay, we've got an issue here. And, uh, and that's, that was the diagnosis. 
It happened over and over, pretty much every day became part of my practice. So once you have the link and sort of know what's going on, what was your general approach to people at that point? Well, once you've identified what the particular stresses are that the individual is suffering from, then it's a matter of just uh, developing some treatment uh, that's going to help them uh, cope with each one of those. You want to try to address uh, every one of the stresses that the patient is suffering from. The most challenging are the repressed emotions. And it is remarkable uh, how uh, um, an emotion that is powerful enough to make you physically ill um, can be completely below the, the level of conscious awareness. Uh, my, right. my favorite story about that is a patient with uh, attacks of nausea, vomiting, and extreme dizziness. Uh, she was hospitalized at a major West Coast university, a total of about 60 times over 15 years uh, with no diagnosis. She saw a dozen different specialists in various uh, uh, areas of medicine. They had her see a psychiatrist who, you know, like too many mental health professionals, wasn't aware of what you need to look for in a patient who's physically ill as opposed to mentally ill. And he completely missed the diagnosis as well. Um, but it, essentially, all of her attacks of illness were uh, linked to encounters with her abusive mother, either on the phone or uh, in person. And once we were able to show her that connection, it brought into conscious awareness the uh, extreme level of stress that she had uh, uh, in her interactions with that woman. And in her case, that was the solution. Just becoming aware of uh, this connection and, and the extreme emotions that were repressed in her case uh, around her mother, who'd been verbally and emotionally abusing her for over 45 years. Wow. Um, that, that was enough. Uh, she could process that. And uh, it no longer, those emotions no longer needed to be expressed via her body. And just to be clear, um, we all still treat symptoms. I know you worked with me on a friend of ours in Italy, a young girl who had mm -hmm. issues, and she'd been really, really just going down the really badly downhill for a while. For about three years, she had dropped out of school, et cetera. And I know you talked to her. We got some medications going. You had her do some other evaluations just to make sure. But after three years, she, she was very young, 27 years old at the time. Um, she's thriving, she's doing just fine. But so just to understand that we think treating symptoms are important. Um, so it doesn't mean we're just going after just one thing. So it's, it's an overall approach that actually makes a big difference. Um, but yes, that was a remarkable, uh, getting her to watch you in action with her was really, <laughs> really nice to watch. I'm glad but, she had a good outcome. That's good to hear. Yes, she did. So the other question I have is that, okay, this is a one of your more dramatic stories of 60 visits over a few years. And you're really within three or four months, she's fine. It jumps out of me that the cost of medical care that didn't have to happen is pretty high. Yeah, th this is um, one of the great things about the psychophysiologic disorders field is that it, it addresses all four components of what's are called the, the quadruple aim. The Institute of Healthcare Improvement uh, developed this. And the quadruple aim is to give the patient a good um, care experience to get good diagnostic and therapeutic um, care delivered, uh, to do so at um, um, no more cost than is necessary, and also to address um, the physician's um, experience of their practice, their, their work life. And psychophysiologic work um, meets all four of those goals. And the, the cost, you're absolutely right. I mean, 
the um, the making the correct diagnosis and applying treatment based on that is always going to be more cost effective than not making a diagnosis at all. I mean, when you you know, we're good physicians are at putting labels on people that don't help us um, understand why the person is ill or direct us to any uh, uh, focused treatment based on the source of that person's illness. So irritable bowel syndrome is a classic example of that. It's a, it's a label. It doesn't tell you why the person has the irritable right. bowel. It doesn't give you a clue about uh, what to do for it, except to treat the symptoms rather than the cause. Um, but when we do a psychophysiologic assessment, a stress assessment on somebody, it gives us the, the real cause of these things. And then we can focus our treatment on the real cause. And uh, it can save a ton of money. One of, I'll always remember one of my patients, 55 years of abdominal pain. He's a 74-year-old. He's been having it since he was 19. He, I saw him back in the days of paper charts. Volume three of his paper chart was eight centimeters thick, uh, full of you know negative diagnostics tests and unsuccessful therapeutic trials. I mean, the amount of money represented just by volume three uh, is, is uh, you know, off the charts. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And I'm assuming that you actually helped solve this problem. Am I correct? Uh, within a month, he was asymptomatic. <laughs> yeah, he was, he, was, he was a great story. He was a, a lumberjack, um, you know, probably illiterate. You know, I didn't get into that too much, but he was a man of very few words. I mean, getting his history was like cross-examining a mafia boss on the witness stand. I mean, he was not giving anything away. Um, fortunately, his wife was there and she would fill in all the details, which was that, you know, he'd been severely physically abused as a boy to the point where he just walked away from home at age 15, got a job with a forest products company here in Oregon and never looked back, never saw his family again, uh, but started having symptoms a few years later and they were still going on. He age 74. Um, so, you know, going to a therapist, you know, that wasn't going to work for him. Reading books wasn't going to work for him. Uh, listening to podcasts, uh, even yours wasn't going to work for him. So I sent him off to a, uh, a class that we had for uh, what was called adult children of dysfunctional families, small group, you know, eight or 10 people with an instructor. Um, and it was two hours a week for eight weeks. So but he came back afterwards to tell me the story, which was that he didn't say a word, you know, which was typical for him. The first two classes, the third class, he finally lets out two sentences and then he stops, you know, and he waits for the rest of the group to carry on. But, you know, pretty savvy group. And they all just sat there and stared at him, uh, waiting for him to, to keep going. And he finally yielded to the pressure and he started talking again. And once he started again, he couldn't stop. And he went on for 35 or 40 minutes sharing his uh, his life story, which yeah. for him, you know, that, you know, 40 minutes for him was like a, a Russian novel. Um, and <clears throat> that cathartic event in his life with that supportive group listening to him for that length of time. Um, you know, he stopped having symptoms at that point. And he came to see me, you know, a couple months later, still not having any symptoms after having gone 55 years, rarely without symptoms for longer than a week or two. So uh, I, I love that story. I mean, it shows that, you know, even people who are not verbally skilled can access these emotions and uh, with therapeutic success. Wow. Yeah, I think that's what probably drives both of us pretty hard is that you look at his life and you look at just all the really unnecessary suffering. 
Yeah, uh, you know, that's needless suffering. I mean, this is the biggest blind spot in healthcare we're talking about here. Right. I mean, it's 40 percent of primary care patients, approximately one in six adults. And, you know, it's 50 percent larger than the diabetic population. And right. we're not even getting the right diagnosis. It right. is it's just, you know, as a physician, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. It is. It's very, um, you know, I quit my surgical practice to do this because I was seeing people, you know, actively, physically, I use the word harmed, even yeah. maimed by spine surgery, right? And the surgeries have gotten more complex and bigger. But what's happening when you do a bigger, unnecessary surgery, you actually hurt the person more. And so we're basically operating on normal spines for people's age. And of course, the results are around 20% success rates. So we're actively hurting people. So we're not only not helping people, we're actively hurting them, which is really discouraging. And I think the essence of what um, I'd like to say today is that if you don't have the correct diagnosis in any realm, doesn't matter what field you're in, you can't solve the problem. And then the diagnosis, the data for the diagnosis, this is the stuff that Dave and I are doing, it's not made up. There's thousands of research papers coming from different angles that document what we're doing is correct. And so this is all based on deep medical science. This is not a type of imaginary type process. It's not even about believing in Dave Clark or David Hanscom. It's about just understanding what the neuroscience is and just applying it. It's not that hard. Yeah, so we've taken a, a couple hundred of the best papers and put them in a bibliography with a little paragraph after each one explaining the, the significance. If you go to ppdassociation.org, uh, you can find the bibliography. The, the, the science is really solid. The problem is that it's published in, uh, you know, almost 200 journals. So most physicians uh, who don't follow this, you know, they don't read more than a couple of journals each. And so they're not aware of the quality and quantity of evidence out there. Right. So um, thank you a lot. I could talk to you for a long time about this. These are just a few of the incredible stories that Dave has about his patient success. So a couple of things we're going to, on the next podcast, we're going to discuss his work now. You actually quit your practice in 2009. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Because you did Pursue this full time. Teach this full time. Run run the nonprofit uh, PPD association. Yeah. Right. So um, just today we'll introduce the next section. Um, you know, next week when we um, when we podcast this. But um, right now, how to access your efforts is the PPD. I'll let you. Yeah, ppdassociation.org uh, is the website, and there's um, just a lot of information on there. Um, one of the things I like to point people to under the symptoms tab is, are two questionnaires. Uh, one of them is 30 questions. The second one is nine, and you can download that. And it's those are questionnaires that give people a context. You know, the most common question we get from people is, I've got symptoms X, Y, and Z. Could this possibly be psychophysiologic in nature? And if you give yourself those two questionnaires, um, it's going to give you a, not, a, you know, a confirmed diagnosis, but it's going to give you a real sense of whether you fit the, the usual profile of people with psychophysiologic disorders. So I don't want to end up this talk too negative, but I have to do say something. So you have physical symptoms that are real symptoms. And unfortunately, medicines, if you can't quote find a structural reason for it, they must somehow be imaginary. And, you know, that's just sort of the thing it is that, you know, maybe you're not tough enough. Maybe you're sort of a wimp. Maybe you don't. Whatever it is, the labels go on and the symptoms aren't really there. And it seems hard for you and I to believe because we've seen this so long and so hard. But 
It's all real stuff. Yeah, that's that's how physicians are taught. Is that right. not only are the symptoms uh, not particularly real, but that there's nothing you can do about it. And you know, right. both of those statements are utterly false. Correct. So that's why um, there is a growing number of us who are very serious about this, and we hate to see, as you use the word, deedless suffering. And so we're excited about it. At the same time, we're um, a little disturbed about how um, hard it is to keep moving forward. But I would say the last um, five years, particularly, there seems to be some definite movement forward on, on the fronts that we're working on. So the next podcast, we'll talk about uh, Dave's work, which is really admirable and really um, impactful. It's making a big difference. So Dave, thank you very much for being on the program. And uh, we'll talk soon. I look forward to it. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. David Clark, for being on the show today and for explaining the nature of psychophysiologic disorders and how they're diagnosed. I'm your host, Tom Masters, reminding you to be back next week for another episode of Back in Control Radio with Dr. David Hanscom. And in the meantime, be sure to visit the website at www.thedocjourney.com. Thanks for listening today and join us next week for Back in Control Radio.